Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we take you into the AOC virtual series. A couple weeks ago, I moderated a webinar with Vice Admiral Frank Morley, a call sign Spanky. Vice Admiral Morley is the Principal Military Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. Uh, it was a great presentation and conversation. If you're an AOC member, you can go to crows.org and listen to the entire webinar with the Q&A session. Uh, but Vice Admiral Morley shared his candid thoughts and insights on electromagnetic warfare and its central role in winning modern conflict across all domains. Uh, it's a great talk, and I thought it'd be good to share his presentation with you. Uh, if you want to download his slides, which are not necessary to follow along with his talk, uh, we will link them in the episode show notes. So without further delay, here is Vice Admiral Frank Spanky Morley. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and uh, once again, and thank you for attending today's webinar on the current state and way forward EW Insights with Vice Admiral Frank Morley. Principal Military Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. He is the Department of Navy's Senior Uniformed Acquisition Official. Uh, my name is Ken Miller. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows and host of AOC's podcast from the Crows Nest. It's great to be here with you again today. A copy of today's slide deck, the latest journal of electromagnetic dominance, the JED, and additional help materials are all available in the resource list. Uh, we encourage you to download any resources or links that you may find useful. You can visit crows.org for more information on many of our programs and opportunities, including upcoming conferences, webinars, and our podcast series. Uh, if you are not a member of AOC, please join today. Uh, even though our live webinars are free for everyone, only members can access past webinars and resources. So if you're under 25 years old, you get a free three-year membership. All others receive $20 off a regular one-year membership using the promo code WebinarMembership20. I also want to give a special thank you to our gold sponsors, Rodi and Schwartz, and Mercury Systems. At this time, I'd like to welcome our guest presenter today, Vice Admiral Frank Spanky Morley, to AOC Virtual Series. As I said at the top, Vice Admiral Morley is the Principal Military Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition. He is the Department of the Navy's Senior Uniformed Acquisition Official. Uh, Vice Admiral Morley is a native of Phoenix, Arizona. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics and a commission as an ensign from the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps at San Diego State University. He is a graduate of U.S. Naval Test Pilot School and holds a Master's of Science in Aviation Systems from the University of Tennessee. He also holds numerous other degrees from leading national security programs at both military and private academic institutions. 
He has a long and distinguished operational career as an F-18 pilot serving tours in Operation Southern Watch, Desert Fox, Noble Eagle, Joint Guardian, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom. He has numerous short tours as well as a test pilot and notably also as program manager for PMA 265, where he directed the final year of development and fleet introduction of the E-18G Growler. Vice Admiral Morley, it's great to have you here with us today. I've been looking forward to your presentation for quite some time, so I won't delay any further and turn it over to you. Thanks for joining us. All right. Hey, thanks, Ken. All right. Well, hello, everybody. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be here uh, coming to you from uh, Paris, France, actually. Uh, a rare opportunity for me to get uh, that far out of the Pentagon, but uh, the uh, Paris Air Show is just wrapping up, and uh, I got the chance to come here as the senior uh, Department of the Navy rep. So it was uh, good to be back at uh, Paris after four years. I appreciate AOC, the Association of Old Crows, uh, for uh, inviting me and for everything that you all do each and every day, focusing on electronic warfare, cyber, IO. Uh, it's a huge value add uh, to, uh, to the war fight across the board. And of course, the journal that you publish uh, just continues to uh, expand the knowledge uh, across uh, across our warfighters and the community uh, at large. It's a very, as I found, it's a very focused uh, field in which uh, few really fully uh, or even uh, partially uh, understand it. And so uh, this community, this tight-knit community, uh, is even more critical uh, in uh, ensuring that uh, we uh, advance uh, these capabilities, that we fund the right stuff, uh, and that we uh, take care of the equipment that we uh, provided and applied in the right way because uh, because only you truly understand uh, what it can do. I saw that uh, in the development of Growler uh, in spades. So uh, thanks for having me, and uh, away we go here. I'll, uh, I think uh, what i like to do, though, uh, when I start uh, sometimes talking is um, a couple of things. One is uh, just to kind of review with everybody what makes DOD unique uh, in our challenges uh, in, um, you know, certainly I'm coming to you from an acquisition standpoint, but uh, in dealing with us uh, in the challenges that we have to get through uh, in order to, uh, you know, field equipment in a rapid manner and sometimes what others uh, need to deal with in order to uh, work with us, because uh, as many folks on this net understand, uh, more and more of the advancing capabilities are being led in the commercial space and not in deep government labs anymore. And so our ability to uh, draw the connections of uh, all the innovative commercial companies out there and apply what they're doing into our uh, weapons platforms, sensors, et cetera, uh, as quickly as possible. It's, it's somewhat of a new skill set that we're trying to do. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, later there. So, But a couple things just to cage everybody. I know you kind of know this, but uh, uh, sometimes it's worth uh, taking a moment. You know, one is like with any large established organization, we struggle uh, with the day-to-day -day innovation absent a crisis. So, you know, if there's a crisis, we do pretty good. Uh, we proved that uh, uh, throughout uh, history, uh, Ukraine probably being the uh, most recent uh, example uh, of all that was done in the uh, diplomatic space, the uh, intelligence space, 
uh, in the uh, rapid uh, authorities uh, and policies uh, that were uh, provided, uh, the uh, presidential drawdowns, which nobody even heard of until this started, and now I think we're on our 29th or more, and um, and just all the quite innovative things that whether the book will ever be written, I don't know um, what's going on in theater. So we do well in the crisis, but day-to-day as a large organization, like any large organization, uh, sometimes we uh, kind of struggle. What might make us a bit unique, however, from maybe other large commercial organizations, we certainly have a conservative no-fail mission. That goes without saying. Uh, I remember uh, former Secretary of the Navy uh, Danzig told me in discussions about this and how we move forward faster. He said, you know, in the end, about nine out of 10 businesses fail, and we can't afford 10 navies to get one right. Um, so we're going to be a little bit on the conservative side uh, and avoid, uh, you know, that moonshot failure in most cases. Uh, we also deal in heavy capital investments, and we have very few non-consumable items. So the uh, update of our hardware uh, that bill is on us, and it's not something that we can uh, spread to a customer base uh, as we uh, as we deal with obsolescence, uh, advances, et cetera. And along those lines, yeah, no customer base to buy that new hardware. So uh, that, that becomes a challenge as we address obsolescence, et cetera. We have a uh, board of directors of 535 individuals that are not always aligned, and we have a sacred trust, the U.S. taxpayer dollars, and so the system is set up with many, many checks and balances in order for us to move forward. So these are just, I just use that kind of as a framework as to the unique challenges that, uh, that uh, we have within uh, the department, um, just based off the uh, facts of life, if you will. But let's go to the uh, next slide, please. So despite all of those challenges, I say we actually, uh, and, and to spend a moment on the good side, um, we actually do accomplish stuff. So uh, I like to remind folks of this occasionally, too, that, uh, you know, the Department of Navy, let's take FY22. Last year, we obligated uh, over $123 billion, basically everything that was uh, provided uh, to the acquisition force to obligate. Uh, that uh, involved over 230,000 contract actions. So when folks say, why can't we get on contract? We do that about a quarter of a million times a year. Uh, that was with 18,000 uh, different prime companies, and we competed over $50 billion of that, and 19.6% of that went to small business. So uh, important just to take a moment to you know understand that actually we do uh, move things through the system. Uh, for the Navy, that's about 10 ships per year, um, plus or minus one or so, uh, around 100 aircraft. Of note, we've pretty much recapitalized naval aviation now with uh, new hardware. Uh, we're trying to get ourselves to a rate of construction and delivery of two Virginia-class attack submarines per year, and we're now building the first-of-class Columbia ballistic missile sub to replace Ohio, and that's programmed at one per year. So those are uh, off and running. So that's kind of mostly the good, but, uh, of course, we don't focus on that. Um, we uh, focus on where to, uh, where to get better. So next slide, please. I thought I would uh, just spend our time here, so we'd leave time for discussion, uh, maybe uh, on three uh, areas of effort, um, if you will. Bending the curve, and what I mean by that is bending the curve of uh, the cost and the time uh, for development to uh, 
We'll talk a little bit about mainline uh, EW efforts. I will be careful here that uh, I'm talking to uh, an expert community in EW, so uh, I am going to uh, be smart and not dive too deep uh, out of my depths there uh, with you all. I, I remember when, you know, when we were in Growler EMD, and I was out at Whidbey talking with the weapons school as we were, uh, you know, helping them start to formulate the syllabus and what they were going to do as, uh, as this thing, uh, you know, made, I got through Oppenbau and IOC and, uh, started getting delivered. And, um, I remember one of the lieutenants, uh, was making a statement and I knew that he had a fundamental misunderstanding of the design of the system and that, uh, I had to kind of correct that. And so, uh, you know, I spoke up and I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm going to not say this exactly right, but I've got to kind of correct the, the line of that you're going. And I remember the Lieutenant from the weapons school up at Whidbey, he said, that's okay, sir. You speak pigeon prowler. We understand you. And, uh, that was a pretty big compliment to me. And it, it goes to say that this is a completely different language. Um, and you start to pick it up, uh, but sometimes you can't say it very well. So, uh, and it reminded me of where my limits were. But we'll talk uh, real quick about uh, some of the major EW efforts. Obviously, it's um, you know as you all know, uh, you know fundamental to uh, the fight that we have to do. Uh, and then I'll uh, spend a little time in the Valley of Death, and uh, that really gets at what I talked about: how do we get these uh, do better at bringing these advancing capabilities? Uh, into the hand of our uh, our users uh, quicker, given that most of this is in the commercial space. So that's where uh, I'll uh, I'll spend my time here today. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense-making, up to tactical and operational-level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products 
benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. The next slide, please. All right. So uh, bending the curve. One way to kind of think about this, uh, you know, an entrepreneur oftentimes ask themselves three basic questions before they go forward uh, with an adventure. Uh, one is uh, why this? Uh, the second question is why now? And the third is why me? So uh, I'll talk about it in these terms, but uh, why this? Why is it uh, time to bend the curve other than it's just nice to do? Well, you know, the systems engineering system that we, uh, the process that we all work with uh, really came around with General Shriver there in the slide uh, in the development of ballistic missiles, uh, where we, we got into a complex system uh, that was too expensive to test, fail, uh, redesign, and test again as a, as a uh, main line of effort for development. And so they put together, obviously this stuff existed, but they put together a very systematic systems engineering process, the systems engineering B, the thing that we all grew up with uh, and perfected that as a process uh, during this time. Uh, that is what we all learned and still apply basically today, although very stretched from its original uh, purpose. It was adequate for a complex system like a ballistic missile. It is has proven adequate for complicated systems like a ballistic missile. It's proven woefully inadequate for complex systems that are so software-driven that we deal with today with hundreds of millions of lines of code that need to talk to other millions of lines of code. So that's the problem we've been seeing. The entire developmental world, not just within Department of Defense, has been struggling with this, and the result has been it's taken longer to develop things. Uh, it costs more. We find more problems uh, in tests. We find problems once it's on market or in users' hands, et cetera. Okay. So that's, uh, that's, that's a challenge. But most folks are realizing now that the uh, that technology is providing us the tools to start to bend that curve uh, there. You know, when you start talking model-based engineering, the model-based test, model-based uh, design, the model-based manufacturing, uh, digital design manufacturing, the uh, digital twin, uh, open architecture as we finally kind of understand what that is and how to do it, additive manufacturing to some extent uh, on that. So these are tools that uh, 
the technology is now providing us an application towards bending that curve of development time and cost. And we're seeing that in some of the more innovative commercial companies out there uh, where they're doing that. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of sets and reps on something overnight while everybody's asleep to come home to look at uh, processed, analyzed data, understand where the failure modes are, and make corrections that next day. Um, these type, these type of things. So that's fundamentally changing uh, the way we do business. The challenge for us is going to be uh, bringing that home and actually driving delta outcomes. Because, as many of you know, uh, organizations in general and government specifically uh, will oftentimes take a new thing and then apply it to the old thing and the old way of doing business and say they're innovating when actually we're not making much of a delta outcome. So as a simple example, I would say, and I, I challenge our, you know, our community that uh, a, an aircraft or a system or a platform that has been digitally designed and digitally manufactured, uh, that the design and structure that uh, that entity is understood far more than it ever was before, probably doesn't have to go through the same flight test plan that we've used over the last 20, 30 years. Maybe we can take some uh, uh, more uh, iterative uh, test points to validate the model and reduce the total number of uh, flight hours to do that. So, But we will not necessarily be key to do that uh, without kind of forcing ourselves a bit. So that's kind of the why this. The why now is really on the top of the slide, which everybody's aware that we've uh, exited the era of the post-Cold War world where we had we did not have an existential threat, um, and uh, we were the sole superpower. That is no longer the case. We're back into where most of history has been, where we do have a challenger in the uh, global world, and, uh, and and we've got a competitor, and we got to get on our game. And so... Um, and that's, uh, you know, I think we're all coming around to that now, but that's been a cultural change. Uh, that really flipped about six, seven years ago in our national security establishment. And we have to remember that uh, our workforce and, um, you know, most of us, with a few exceptions uh, on, the, uh, on the rather experienced end of the scale, have really lived our entire professional lives in the post-Cold War superpower era and have not had to do this. So it is a fundamental shift in thinking across the entire workforce and our SOPs and our risk level um, and, and, and all those things. So that's, uh, that's the why now. And then the why me or the why us is because what I tell the workforce is, hey, we're it. We're, uh, we're the ones in the seat. We're the ones in our positions of responsibility uh, at a time of rising competition at a time where there are a technical tools available to actually make a difference. And so that's the, that's the challenge that uh, we put on ourselves here as we move forward. Okay, so uh, slide five, please. I kind of talked through five a little bit, but this kind of gets a little bit to the, um, to the concept. If you look at the top left, you know, that's kind of uh, the challenge we've been living. The problem, if you will, is uh, it just it's kind of a spiral that's, uh, that's not productive, that uh, the cost of uh, development, cost of fielding, um, it just continues to go up. So we have less buying power. So we have to look at ways to bend that curve. I just talked about utilizing the, uh, the tools of technology. 
there's also other levers. Uh, they're uh, understanding uh, there's ways to curb requirements and incremental uh, uh, approach to things and not going big bang. Uh, the F-18, E-18G family uh, development is a great example of that. DDG-51 is another great example of that, where we continue to incrementally provide capability, control the cost and risk, and the uh, technical uh, advancements and generally delivered uh, on time. And then there are other things of process, uh, get real, get better, uh, how to more uh, professionally manage uh, the efforts that we're doing. So there are, there are several things to uh, address there. Okay, so that's the, uh, that's the bend the curve part. Next slide, please. Electronic warfare, I'll just put my favorite electronic warfare platform for this discussion, but uh, the E18G Growler, which you all recognize. Uh, I'll just touch on a few things. Uh, obviously, the unmanned area is uh, continues to advance. The Marine Corps is uh, uh, going forward with an MQ-9 Reaper uh, maritime variant. Uh, for that, that's going to uh, include EW payload for detection, location, identification of uh, signals of interest, uh, uh, target location, et cetera, much uh, to some extent like we've seen with Growler. Uh, I think that's going to be a great force multiplier, relatively low-cost, uh, proven platform, again, an incremental development way uh, with uh, maritime-focused sensors on it uh, and then applying uh, those capabilities in which we need, which uh, the electromagnetic spectrum is a big part of that. NQ4 Triton is just about here in IOC. We've been, uh, of course, utilizing it operationally prior, but that should officially go IOC this year. Uh, on that, and uh, there's uh, certainly a huge portion of the uh, payload there, multi-intelligence integrated functional capability, uh, tied with uh, also tied with the P8, really is a uh, family assistance solution uh, for fleet ISR uh, beyond just the ASW mission. So really the first time that we shorted a manned platform by and, uh, you know, we have the P8 by to what uh, the P3s were in the fleet, uh, substituted in uh, the MQ4 Triton uh, to some extent. And then, uh, and then really those two uh, platforms are going to work uh, together as a community uh, there. Uh, of course, you've got the uh, venerable growler. Uh, the one thing I always like to uh, tell on the growler story is uh, that original program of record was 84 aircraft. Um, in the end, I think, if I remember right, the U.S. Burma record ended up being 168. That's what we bought. I could be off a few there. And, uh, of course, the Aussies bought 12 uh, more of those. And uh, I can't point to many programs where you doubled the original program record. Normally, you have them. So um, so that, that alone tells you the... Uh, Great success of that program, uh, as well as the uh, the understood application of what it brings. And of course, uh, this audience understands it very well. But uh, you know what we became to understand was that uh, this thing not only does the traditional role of uh, you know of uh, electronic uh, sensing and jamming, but it also can now provide. Uh, very uh, precise passive uh, electronic uh, target location and uh, subsequent targeting. Uh, and so that uh, changed a little bit of the calculus on this airplane. And, uh, you know, we went from uh, four or maybe five plan for the air wing on each carrier to, uh, to seven as the baseline because of the value 
and the applications that uh, that the airplane provided. So um, certainly a, a wonderful story there. I'll also tell you that it is a great example of the importance of this community and how to work together to take care of this capability. So what do I mean by that? I found when we were developing Growler that uh, a huge part of the success of it was that we had people typically in the uh, – you know, in the form of a, an 04 or an 05, uh, but also uh, civilians at the GS-14 level as well, plus or minus, that were that were strategically located across all the key communities, at the test center, at the program office, at uh, VX-9, at CODIF, at the fleet. And they all talked. And they were the only ones that understood what they were talking about. They had the, uh, they had, they had the, goodness of the community at heart as their North Star, if you will, and they worked out the problem uh, together as a community. They honored the requirements of their home organization, um, but they worked through those problems, and I always attributed those O5s and GS14s across those communities as really the backbone of success of Growler delivering uh, on time, on cost. Uh, on performance and then doubling the program of record. It was, it was absolutely magical to see. As an example, I remember when we were about two months from OpiVal, and I asked uh, our uh, engineer in the program office, uh, Naked Williams, who many of you know, he was commander at the time, uh, I said, have we finalized a couple, uh, certain target set that the ALQ-218 was going to uh test against in, in IOT&E, in OptiVal. And he said, no, not yet. And I said, why not? And he said, because Tater, who many of you know, he was N98 at the time, hasn't determined it yet. And then I went through the roof and uh, with some expletives, uh, talked about how in the world, what am I going to do when the requirements folks finally set the final requirement a month before OptiVal? There's nothing I can do. Uh, to change the system, to test for it, to do anything. This is, you know, and I just went on and on. And Naked just sat there quietly and patiently. And uh, and when I was done, he asked, are you done? And I said, maybe. And uh, he said, do you want to know what's going on? I said, I'd like to. And he said, we're all sorting out exactly what the 218 is going to be able to sense, and then we'll finalize the requirement for that. And I'm like, oh. Okay, so we're all working together to make sure we're successful, not to compromise the mission, not to cheat the test necessarily, but because this is a not a one or a zero art form uh, to ins- to bend the system in order to ensure that we're successful uh, and evaluate uh, the system app- you know applicably. Um, and I, I just thought that was brilliant. And, uh, and, and so anyway, I just, uh, I, I didn't mean to go on that long on that one, but I just wanted to share that. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. Two more things, um, you know, that are really big, uh, in play. Uh, obviously I mentioned DDG, you know, flight three is out there now. The Jack H Lucas, uh, gone through acceptance trial. She's looking pretty good. She brings the spy six radar on for the first time. Uh, we got missile defense radar system built in. Uh, there and we got C Whip Block Three, uh, which of course has given us a non-kinetic attack capability. So uh, uh, just a, uh, a sprinkling of examples of uh, platforms of where 
uh, EW is uh, continuing to advance. And uh, and then again, uh, maybe a deep dive a little bit about how important uh, this community is in uh, actually executing it. Okay, uh, let's go to the seven, please. Next slide. Ben. All right, now this one's way complex uh, on it because uh, it's what I had here to put the slide together, but it will give you a... I'll walk you through not the slide, but the concept. So it is recognized. Uh, this is not the first time, um, but obviously it is hard to get, uh, you know, things, uh, tech, you know, emerging technologies fielded, right? We always talk value of death, whether it's in government or outside government. There's always uh, big challenges. First of all, I want you to admit that uh, not all developing technologies deserve to be fielded or should be fielded. They're not going to develop. Uh, they're not going to. They're not going to end up being applicable. Uh, the threat's going to change, uh, or priority's going to be set. And there's not, you know, unlimited funding. So, you know, a VC capital, a, a venture capitalist firm will, uh, if, if they get, uh, you know, five, ten times return on five percent of their investment, they're doing it about right. Uh, so, uh, I don't know what the right number is here. But, uh, but it certainly isn't 100% or near it. So we have to accept that, first of all. Um, but nonetheless, we know that we can do better here. Uh, what uh, folks have, and, and, and I think there's a lot of attention on it now because of the environment I've explained, because of, uh, of China as a global competitor, and because most of the uh, technologies that are applicable are uh, exist in the commercial sphere. In fact, if you look at OSD's, uh, R&E's top 14, you know, technologies for the Department of Defense, I think 10 of those are, are led in the commercial space. So, so this has an acute focus now uh, across the services. So what we've found, and I'm sure we've found it before, because um, these things, you know, history oftentimes rhymes, but uh, what we found is that uh, I'll give you uh, two or three reasons fundamentally why uh, we have challenges uh, with uh, this, just uh, just uh, kind of uh, structural challenges. First off, uh, oftentimes these emerging technologies that are going to matter today, they're going to be applied in a fourth or fifth tier item. So let's take, uh, uh, for example, I don't know, AI. Um, AI, we're probably not going to contract directly for an AI algorithm. We are going to contract for an airplane that has a mission computer that uh, that delivers a certain uh, function in that mission computer that requires an AI algorithm in order to do that. So uh, we we need prime the primes help here. We need to make sure we set up the uh, supply base lines and the way to where we can suck up those uh, those uh, innovative firms. Uh, they're not crushed or they're not, uh, or the primes don't suffer from a not invented here type of uh, platform. So incentives and, and ways to look out for that uh, is certainly a, uh, a structural area we have to watch out for. Second, there's no one organization that truly exists. Its mission is to really bridge that gap uh, to, to function equally on understanding the operational problems the fleet needs to solve and can't solve today with the emerging technologies that are, uh, that are near transition maturity uh, and with the uh, skills and knowledge in order to actually uh, uh, acquire and apply 
those technologies uh, and get them into the systems to solve for the fleet, right? We have organizations that do one piece of that puzzle, uh, but not all. So, you know, we have certainly we have a lot of S&T efforts that do great work on the S&T, and they really want that stuff to, tra- uh, to uh, you know, to uh, transfer um, and transition. But ultimately, uh, their foundational job is about the developing the technology. And we've got, of course, the fleets and the operational uh, thinkers and requirements folks that are uh, that understand the operational problem and wanting to uh, get stuff into that, but they're not exactly sure what's out there being developed, how to apply it, or how to get it. And then, uh, and then of course, uh, you know, we've got folks working programmable record stuff, but not really looking for more work in order to uh, create many programs, if you will, to advance the technology. So that's a structural challenge that we have on that. And then we uh, don't really, uh, if we do find that uh, we do take care of both sides of that equation, we understand what we're trying to pitch and we understand who needs to catch it, for what purpose, we uh, don't really have the funding agility inside the palm to do much about it. So those are fundamental structural challenges that we have for this. And so what you've seen over the last few years across the services are a number of pilots or stand-up organizations uh, that have really yielded an understanding of this model to address it. Um, and, uh, and so AFWORKS on the Air Force and the Unmanned Task Force on the Navy side and, you know, the Office of Strategic Capital from OSD, these are all examples of trying to apply this model um, and mitigate these fundamental challenges that we have. They're all not perfect. They all have their issues there, but they're kind of replicating the same understanding on there. So that's the challenge that we're working through is how to institutionalize that kind of thinking in order to bridge that gap. Um, And uh, so a lot more work to do. Uh, what I just explained is basically what's on that slide without you having to read it. So, so that's that's where we're going there, and we have we have you know specific examples of success there, and uh, we're trying to continue to pilot those, uh, scale that learning, and then institutionalize that learning in some way, shape, or form, so that we don't kill it uh, by putting into normal bureaucratic process, but we actually it's not a pickup game either. So. Um, that's a area of rich uh, effort. Okay, almost done here. Next slide. Lots of uh, challenges in very challenging times. Uh, I do like to end on a positive note on that. You know, before this job, I had the uh, uh, job of, uh, of the director of uh, NIPO, our international uh, efforts. So I was uh, I was one of the top five uh, leading international arms dealers in the world. And, uh, and I spent five years uh, really selling the United States, uh, our goods, our products, our capabilities, uh, our people, our culture, our, uh, everything. Very clear to me, and I just spent the last uh, three days doing the same thing again uh, here, sort of. Very clear to me, the U.S. is still the, pos- uh, the partner of choice by far. We have more friends in the world by far. If you're challenged by a nation state with one-fifth of the world's population, it's probably best to have most of the remaining four-fifths on your side. And historically, those with the most friends tend to win. So uh, we have that inherent strategic advantage, uh, and we want to continue to enhance that and uh, and take advantage of that. 
the um, when I was in Vietnam several years ago uh, to meet with all the Vietnamese leadership and try to expand our uh, connections with them. Uh, meeting with our U.S. ambassador to Vietnam at the time, he uh, he told me uh, that night at dinner that uh, has always stuck with me. He said, "Hey, when you talk to these guys, uh, show some swagger, not arrogance. Nobody likes arrogance, uh, but they want to believe in it." All right, so I think that's an important point. And then the top uh, quote on this slide here: "Don't undersell our brand." Uh, Alan Mulally, you know, grew up through Boeing, then he took over the Ford Motor Company. Uh, when Ford was in, in, uh, in, the, in the doldrums, uh, one of his key uh, approaches to that uh, with the company was, hey, we've got a great brand here. We're Ford. Let's not undersell our brand. Let's take pride in that and, uh, and uh, ensure that we, uh, you know, we don't beat ourselves up on this and uh, take advantage of the, what that means. So I think those are uh, some key takeaways as we continue to work and solve all the challenges and problems we have going forward. Uh, you know, we, we, we want to spend our days uh, quantitatively focusing on the red, on the areas where we're coming up short, on the areas we need to get better. Uh, but we can't forget that uh, ultimately, uh, you know, don't undersell our brand here. All right. So, uh, again, I'll just thank you all for the invitation and for what you all do on a daily basis in uh, service to our nation. I learned a tremendous amount, a couple of stories I provided uh, when I was much more deeply involved specifically uh, with Growler, and I try to apply those blessings uh, elsewhere. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. We'll be back in a couple weeks, but in the meantime, enjoy your summer. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.